0: And a very warm welcome to Bureau Happold in Conversation, a space where we discuss big issues in engineering, architecture and construction. This podcast is all about standardised or modular construction. Does the standardisation of buildings create sterilised environments? If we were able to build 10 schools for the price of one, and the compromise was that these schools all look the same, would we accept that? To discuss all this, I'm going to hand over to Alan Waha to lead our discussion and introduce our guests.
1: Thank you, Victoria. And uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome three exciting guests today. Um, we have uh, Mark Ireland from the MTC and Construction Innovation Hub, Mike Cook and Frank Robert from Bureau Happold. I will first start by asking them to introduce themselves.
2: Okay, thank you, Alan. Uh, My name is Mark Ireland. I'm Chief Engineer of Technology Strategy at the Manufacturing Technology Centre in Coventry. I'm currently working in our construction sector team. Um, I also sit on the technical board of the Construction Innovation Hub and chair the High Value Manufacturing Catapult's construction sector strategy team. I'm proud to call myself a manufacturing engineer, and I'm a chartered fellow of the Institution of Engineering and Technology. Um, in my career, I've supported a manufacturer of everything from nuclear reactors, jet engines, fuel cells, automotive batteries, uh, and I'm really enjoying bringing a manufacturing mindset to construction.
3: My, I'm Mike Cook. I'm kind a of partner of Bureau Happold, and I've
2: I've been with Bureau
3: Happold since it started back in the in the uh, 1970s uh, and I've I've kind of, I'm a structural engineer who who's focused very much on um, how we build things um, learning from nature uh, and I've always found nature a really good inspiration um for Sim- simplicity and lightness of touch and minimum use of
4: materials. So my name is Frank Robert. I'm also a partner at Burra-Happold and I've uh, spent the last uh, 20 years plus of my career at the sharp end of project delivery and more recently I've uh, delivered two significant projects in London, one called 5 Broadgate in the heart of the city, and more recently uh, Battersea Power Station where I've experienced firsthand the uh, good and the not so good um, ways of uh, uh, building and that the construction industry can bring or has brought to the party.
1: So to start a conversation, um, the, the, the big question for me is what can we learn from manufacturing? And uh, Mark? you coming from a manufacturing mindset and design thinking from manufacturing, so how do you see building design and how it could benefit from your, from your manufacturing experience?
2: So clearly, there are quite a few differences between a manufacturing environment and construction. There are probably three or four points I'd like to draw on. Um, One is the fact that the construction sector is very transient in nature with no longevity of order book. And when I talk to people, I use the analogy of that would be a bit like football, only existing um, as these transient teams who every time they want to play a game, they have to the manager the coach all the players they play a game and then whether they win lose or draw that team is disbanded and the whole thing starts again now manufacturing industries tend to work with an order book or at least an understanding of what their order book will be if they produce a product. They work with consistent supply chains and companies actually put their own members of staff into their supply chains to make sure that their supply chains are working in the best interest of everybody. That means that these companies can have a basis for CapEx, so they can buy equipment, they can train people, they can build capabilities and develop processes. And clearly, in a transient world, that's not possible. There are other examples, and and I talk about integration functionality. And when I first started working with construction, actually got some of the members of my team to look out of the window at the MTC workshop and I said to them what do you see and they didn't see anything wrong but from a manufacturing engineers point of view I'm looking at um, cable trays full of uh, process water um, extraction uh, data cabling soil pipes and i can almost imagine each trade going in hiring cherry pickers and and mobile platforms fitting their own cable trays fitting their own pipework, and not thinking about how that could be helping those other services that also need to run through the building and when you look at most manufactured products When you design it, you think, if I'm using this component, what other functionality can I add into it? Construction very much seems to be driven by the traditional trades and the traditional roles, um, whereas manufacturing is very much driven by products and assemblies. Now, what that means is rather than... A trade doing the best job it can and then moving on. When you're thinking about a product in assembly, you are getting a much better um, support between functions and actually cross functional working with multidisciplinary teams. And we know that collaboration between these teams drives innovation within a product. And over time, we see products get better and better and better. And that's why if you look at something like the Aero industry or the automotive industry by almost any metric you can measure those products are improving through time whereas I've struggled to find similar metrics showing the same trends in construction
1: mark that's that's very um, very clear Um, that transient nature and this uh, from a design thinking point of view this trade view versus component view and um i'd like to turn to mike and and ask you know the building world we we've always considered
3: buildability
1: um but have we have we ignored or um have we overlooked this issue i mean
3: I I, I I certainly think Mark's right that there's there's a there is a big difference um, in the construction industry uh, its approach to making stuff um, and it is a very fragmented process and you know it has a traditional way of starting with with design that is. Shall we say allowed to possibly sometimes even encouraged to be very bespoke? You know, it 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 needs to sometimes be very bespoke because uh, every site has its own conditions um, and and needs. You know, whether it's noisy on one side, quiet on the other, whether it has views, whether it you know whether it's very very constraining or or you can have a loose fit building and so on. You know, it had there is a certain need to be bespoke um, to to the site and then to the client who often is seeing, is looking for more than just a product, they're looking for something which reflects their business, which has some sort of uniqueness to it. And and so we've often found in trying to more standardize products, for instance, when we were doing a a lot of of academies um, several years ago, but it was it wasn't encouraged by by the buyer by by the client who wanted uniqueness. Uh, so it, it, you could say it starts there at the very beginning, uh, where where we're in, encouraged very often to to make something that is is very bespoke and responds incredibly well to its to its context. The challenge for us perhaps is to still allow a degree of of, of that. Um, one-off bespoke nature in our buildings, because um, that, is, that is something that gives people pleasure, gives, gives maybe commercial value, um, and it does respect the nature of the sites. Um, but it, it, the question is how do we bring in, how do we perhaps reduce the level of interfaces between all the different people, the the designers, the, the supply chain, which is very, very complicated, that actually delivers the product and then actually putting things together on site. There's so many bits coming from so many places that I think what we're really keen to do is is find ways to, you know, pre-assemble parts and and bring pre-assembled pieces, a bit like, you know, you bring the engine to the car already pre, pre-made. You don't sort of craft it um, in the middle of the bodyworks factory.
4: One of the key challenges in the in, uh, construction industry is managing the interfaces between the different trades, where because of uh, risk and uh, apportionment of risk and the, the, the the wanting to manage them adequately, and as well procurement, often um, the interfaces between packages is not managed in the way that it should be, um, and that leads to uh, uh, unnecessary delays and uh, rework and additional cost on site, which could be uh, avoided if these interfaces were resolved uh, before on time and before we come to site uh, as opposed to having to retrospectively uh, adjust or modify things on site which as i said you know often leads to a lot of inefficiencies uh, and abortive cost and time and I, I don't personally know exactly what percentage that represents but some people have quoted 20 percent improvement possibly in the construction industry if we were able to master these interfaces and have them resolved prior to components coming to site, which maybe you know leads me back to what Mike was saying about you know the manufacture of. Uh, pre-assembled components and then being brought to site and then assembled in an efficient way. Uh, with that, obviously, one needs to take into account the logistics uh, and the size and the weight of these components, because unlike you know the car industry, some of these components can be very heavy and therefore difficult to transport and assemble on site. But it's finding the right tension. Uh, and I think there is a um, very large, um, improvement that could be done uh, without having to revolutionize or reinvent you know the wheel completely
2: yeah so it's really interesting and i've been thinking about this a lot since i started working with construction and i've i've come up with two different views on terms that i'm sure everyone's heard and those two terms are mass customization and mass personalization and at the moment, i suggest what the construction sector does is mass personalization. Um, and what I mean by that is everything can be different. The client can personalize whatever they want. They can have, you know, whatever ceiling height they want, whatever floor areas they want. Now, there was some great work done in the 60s by a guy called Taguchi, and Taguchi has various data that demonstrates that variation costs you money. And in the automotive industry, they took that as a um, driver to get rid of variation where, wherever they can to reduce cost. Now, one of the problems with with mass personalization is the output is often very desirable to a client, to a customer. It gives them something bespoke, something unique, and lets them put their stamp on on whatever it is that they're commissioning. But mass personalization has to be driven by Craftspeople who are flexible and can work um, in this this ever-changing way Um, and I'm not convinced in construction that the client is really informed about what the costs of their decisions are going back to that original point I made that variation costs you money so you can have it but it costs you money now if we look at mass customization Mass customization is really what the automotive industry do today, and it doesn't suggest that everything is the same. Now, from a manufacturing engineering point of view, um, you are designing a product already knowing how you're going to make it, but you build in ways that each of those process steps can be varied without adding much or very little cost to the end product and I've seen some amazing stats from Mini on how many different variants that they've made over time. You know, it's millions and millions of different variants. But fundamentally, they all go down the same production line. They're made by the same people, they're assembled with the same supply chain, um using the same equipment. Now, mass personalization is achievable in a manufacturing in, in environment but it is really at the cutting edge of where we are doing research and development at the moment and some people may have heard of industry four or the fourth industrial revolution and what that really talks about is how we can use toolless manufacturing processes digital tools digital twins um to give us the benefits of personalization, but still using standardised manufacturing processes and a good example that I could give is something like laser cutting, so laser cutting you haven't got any tools, you can cut whatever shape you want, but as long as you've always designed something to be laser cut, designed within the constraints of machine sizes and raw material sizes but as I say, I think that's quite a long way for most of manufacturing and, and construction I think is going to have to go through this mass customization. Step before you can really start losing, looking at manufactured mass personalization. When you think back, you know, I
3: mentioned uh, you know, the start of Bureau happened in 76. We were, it felt like we were at the peak of, of the kind of high tech era where um, structural engineering and architecture kind of merged together. And you had people like uh, Richard Rogers, uh, Norman Foster, Grimshaw, and so on. You had Team, team Four doing some amazing. If you like mechanical buildings, you know, Centre Pompidou, for instance, was going on about that time, mid mid seventies, early seventies. These were kind of, you know, machines for living in, and there was there was a great interest in how things were going to be built, how they could be componentized, how those components could then be really reflected in the architecture. And so it was quite an exciting time to be a structural engineer. As it happened, I was kind of working in a more organic side of things with Fryotto and we were looking at nature and curvy, curvy linear forms, um, um, membrane structures, and things which are very, very minimal materials. So there were sort of two, two threads, but but both were, if you like determining form um, and determining architecture through how things were were built. Um, And and we kind of lost that for a period, And, and I'm not an architectural historian, so I won't Delve into that where we lost it, but but we did, and there was a certain sort of imposition of architecture onto uh, the engineering. There was a stronger rightful interest in energy consumption and reducing uh, reducing the need to waste energy and and making buildings more, more better insulated, more naturally um, ventilated, and so on and so forth. But we're coming now to a we've already reached it really in, in terms of what Frank has said. You know the the the, the digital age and if you like the fourth industrial revolution lets us uh, now use we now have tools where where we can make standardization not uh, a sort of sterilization um, of architecture Um, but what i think it needs it, it needs many things but one thing it needs i think it does need the design team the, the architects uh, the engineers and and the kind of fraternity the quantity surveyors who cost it project managers who who stop or start it um and it needs us to want all to achieve something Thing better um, another movement if you like to achieve something better which I like to think is is to do with a far better use of the materials that we've got uh, and a need to get those materials that we use if we have to build new buildings those buildings have got to work unbelievably functionally uh, they need to be right first time they need to use very little materials um, and they need to have a real performance coming out of them we've got all the tools now that, that let us do that, but I, I, I don't get the sense at the beginning of projects that, that we kind of almost, that we, we don't necessarily quite appreciate the strength of those tools to deliver something so, so much more effective and efficient uh, than we currently do, and we allow the traditional processes, the, the break-up of, of a very fragmented um, supply chain and so on, We let all those things get in the
2: way. Um, One thing I wanted to talk about was um, Pareto. And I'm sure everyone knows about the 80-20 rule. You know, 80% of the wealth is owned by 20% of the populace. And one of the things I, I, I consistently see in construction is that everything is different. Everything has to be different. There is value in everything being different. Part of what we're doing on the Construction Innovation Hub is saying... Actually, when you look at it, there are quite a few buildings that are performing exactly the same function. So if you're looking at schools and doctor's surgeries and prisons, yeah, there are going to be some constraints about the site they're on and making sure that they fit their, their environment. But fundamentally, the the performance and the functions that they're providing are exactly the same. Um, but at the moment, everything's so fragmented. The lessons learned on one exemplar case are not necessarily rolled across to every time we build a school now department for education are really forward thinking on this and uh, doing programs like gen zero to help try and capture some of these lessons learned but what I want us to start start thinking about is this whole Pareto approach and saying, yes, the, the 20%, you know, these exemplar buildings that are going to be aesthetically beautiful and architecturally groundbreaking are always going to have to be very bespoke and very personalised. But for the day-to-day of what we do, how can we start looking at where we have got standardisation, making sure we can mass customise so that we don't just produce everything exactly the same but achieving those benefits from from the manufacturing industries that I've talked about now just to give an idea of the scale of opportunity one of the examples that I use um, is the automotive industry back in about 1912 1914 Now, back then, a Cadillac was one of the best cars that you could buy. They were mass personalized, so they would make a different body for every every consumer if you wanted it. Uh, They were all coach built. They were hand assembled by craftspeople, and they cost. Ah, uh, three thousand dollars ish, I think, which was roughly six times the average American salary. So in modern money, that means that a Cadillac would be costing you about three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. When Ford came along with the Model T and started doing that analysis, that Pareto analysis of the standardized components, they got the cost of the Model T down to about $900-ish, which was about one and a half times the average US salary. Now, that's before they started doing all of the time and motion study um, process flow lines. And by the time they'd finished that, they'd got the Model T down to $300, so a tenth of the price of a catalyst. When you do this Pareto view, can you say, actually, what is it that we want from schools? Do we want them to be aesthetically beautiful and and architecturally groundbreaking? Or actually, would we like 10 schools for the price of every one? If that has to come with a compromise that everything, you can have anything you want as long as it's black, is that a compromise worth making? Probably not. But if we can have mass customization, and we can still have a level of personalization and making everyone look and feel different, then, you know, how close can we get
4: to, to the uh, 10 schools for every one? I think there is huge uh, improvements that we can bring uh, to, to this process. And as I was saying at the beginning, you know, if I think for me, the, one of the key differences which leads to this m- much better efficiency in, uh, well, one of the key differences which leads to this much better efficiency in the car, manuf- car manufacturing compared to the construction industry is that you've got a true ownership of the whole process I mean, yes, you know, you will do some market research as to what your customers want in the car industry, and then you will spend quite a lot of time developing a product around maybe a a common chassis, um, which you can then customize or, you know, add bits to it um, to make different cars from a a similar base. I think we can learn a lot from that in the construction industry where, as you said, if you take a, a, a school, for instance, all the classrooms are the same, you know, they are 49 to 50 meters square because that's the space you need to accommodate 30 children. Um, and a lot of the functions are also the same, you know, from one end of the country to the other. So there's absolutely no reasons why we can't achieve a much better efficiency in uh, and also certainty of outcome for our schools
3: yes I, I i agree frank i i think the the one of the big uh things hurdles that we have to get through is 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 this traditional procurement route of um uh, which is about you know be, creating something which we can go then to the market and and have competitive tendering against it, and then go forward, and then sub sub parts of the building which we can then competitively tender, and so on. And it's it's so fixated by by a kind of making sure we get the lowest cost for everything um, at every stage. It gets broke. The process is is driven by that sense that the economy lies in fragmenting and getting competition at, of every piece. Um, instead of sort of standing back and recognizing, ultimately, the better outcomes could come if we had, if we had one product creating process for for, for the building without all those breaks, uh, which cause so much angst at, at every at, at every break. I will just reflect back to the Team Four and the high tech era of the 70s. There was some what most people would say, you know, supremely efficient, effective. Good-looking architecture coming out of that, where where the engineering processes of manufacture married with the architectural concepts, and, and I, I feel that there's a lot to be said for for that kind of approach and, and recognizing. Is celebrating, if you like, the architecture of making that comes from the making processes. Uh, could be the could be an important step, as well as as well as um, a much greater rationalisation of, of procurement. And maybe we could hope that government could be persuaded to see that they have a, an exemplar role in this, in the way that they procure hospitals and schools. Um, in in the in the future, you know, there's signs of it happening, but not
2: enough. I, I think that segues really nicely into the work that's happening on the Construction Innovation Hub, and you know, Borough Hapold are very forward-thinking, and and one of the companies that are participating in that program, and and you guys are doing so with forty odd other like-minded, forward-thinking people, and the the, the the whole nature of that project is trying to fix some of the things that you're talking about, so having a more informed client who understands that if they always specify things in a certain way and procure things in a certain way. It enables the supply chain to react in a more uh, componentized and standardized delivery mechanism. And um, it, it is really interesting that, that one of the big differences that we've, we've had to put together on the Construction Innovation Hub is changing some of the traditional roles within um, the construction supply chain. So we've sort of coined the term integrator, and these integrators are the equivalent of a vehicle OEM. But bizarrely we we have eight integrators on the construction innovation hub who are all in the future going to be competing against each other, but competing against each other with a standard set of parts. Now as well as these roles so the integrator role is the key one we've then gone as far as thinking about what are those standard parts and we've we've started breaking down what what are the bits that need to be used to configure a building and we've got Thirteen, what we're calling sub-assemblies and they are everything from you know your foundation system your plant room your internal walls your structural frame and we're working with supply chains who are saying well what is a plant room what is the specification what are its interfaces what are the Other methods that value is going to be measured, such as embodied carbon, um, how much of it is UK manufactured or UK assembled how are we going to be measured and that means that we can have companies working in competition with each other but with a standard um, set of interfaces set of value metrics uh, set of design criteria which means that it benefits the whole of that that supply chain but enables competition so that's what we're doing on the construction innovation hub which hopefully supports what you've been talking about mike
4: do you concur i mean if i if i may come in just quickly before mike takes over i mean i you know i'm i'm very pleased to hear what you you're just saying Mark, because i think one of the key things that we need to do is set a set of rules um that we can operate within i mean you mentioned the kitchen analogy which i think is a great one where you got a module there of the standard size in terms of height of uh, worktop uh, width of uh, width and depth of uh, various or standard appliances that are being used in a kitchen and and as a result of that you are enabled to Open, you know, the, uh, um, this to the competition and mass manufacturing because we know everyone knows that they've got to comply with these rules, whatever they may be. And if we're able to set a similar set of rules in the uh, construction industry for standard products, such as maybe school, hospital or others, which are already there in many ways. And if we're able to firm these up, then that enable us, enables us to, um, open up that competition that you're talking about and innovation as well, which I think is great.
3: Yeah, I, I agree, Frank, uh, and I agree with Mark. Whilst I've been talking quite a bit about people want bespoke and sites require it and so on, I, I, I think we dangerous because in the quest to, to reduce our consumption of material and, and, and reduce the carbon footprint of, of construction, you know, we do need to be mindful of how we adapt Buildings to changes of use, um, and and we and 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 allow them to have a long life. We've been doing far too much demolishing of buildings. far too much building of new buildings. And I was just thinking about, you know, currently uh, significant building is is Excel, which Bureau of were designing um, at the same time as as the Millennium Dome. And that is a highly uh, componentized uh, construction. It could potentially have been even more componentized, but but you can see that module after module after module of exactly the same bit of building. So we could hone the design of of that bay of building. and just repeat it endlessly. And of course, with that massive column-free space, it's now being able to adapt it into into becoming a, an emergency hospital, which is which is which is very encouraging, you know. But but if we could do the same sorts of things with our schools, with our with our hospitals, so that they can make sure that they can be um, adapted in the future, is really important. So I think that that there, there's something there about the, the standardization, the componentization that I think gives us this adaptability and therefore really efficient use of materials in the long term that, that, that's also really important to think about.
2: Well, I was going to say, it takes us right back to the beginning of this conversation and the differences between the manufacturing industry and construction. And I think Mike has hit on a very important point, which is there are very few, Few things that we buy that we adapt through its life cycle to have different needs. So if you buy a two-seater sports car and all of a sudden you have a child you probably sell your car and buy a bigger one you don't try and stretch your two seater sports car re-engineer it revalidate it for a different purpose I know I am a manufacturing engineer I'm very clear that, that I am biased in my views but you know I would really like to challenge the sector and say why do we commission and buy buildings this hundred year lifespan and assume that we have to change their role through their lives why don't we just say can we deliver something that can be disassembled repurposed reused and put back into the supply chain again and therefore if we have a different need rather than being constrained by the the way the thing was specified and delivered in the first place, we just do it again that also links on to something else I'm quite passionate about which is if you look at other sectors like electronics or the automotive industry or even the aerospace industry they have things like the WE directive which is the electronics end of life um, recycling directive, automotive have the automotive life directive and what they basically say is the responsibility of the person who built these things to manage them at the end of their lives, to recycle them and and try to minimise their impact on the environment. Now with construction, I'm not sure that's the case
3: yeah mark I, I, I what you've made me think um about is is, is it it's, it's almost it feels like we're at this um you know we're at a junction where we can do almost anything um which sounds a bit grand you know if we forget procurement processes and stuff for a minute, what are we technically capable of delivering? you know we can go into a a highly componentized standardized um modular forms of construction that can be pulled apart, um, flat pack or volumetric, pulled apart, reassembled, reused. So that we never have to build any more components. We can just just keep reassembling them. But also with with our computer controlled machinery and and design processes, we can produce um, a a highly complex, um, organic looking form, out of a kit of parts, say like the like the British Museum uh, roof, um, you know, highly organic form, but built out of components which could perhaps be reassembled. Uh, what's interesting is that 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 nature actually tends to go that way. They 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 have a very efficient. They achieve their efficient use of materials by creating what can be quite complicated geometries. You think of the, the spider's web, it looks at the, the location of where the bush and the tree and the soda is, and, and, and the spider makes makes a web that that fits that 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 geometry and puts down its um, supports where where it can, um, but always using the same processes. So it's interesting that nature tends to go in 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 that direction but but probably if you think about it their reuse does tend to be throw it away or in a spider's case eat it um and then make another one every every time they choose to do it that way um but i'm not sure that's the the right way for us because our making of materials uh like cement for instance is 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 incredibly incredibly high high carbon intensive and 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 damaging to the environment we don't want to be doing that we don't want to be doing that demolish and start again and maybe that is why it it might well push us towards a more a more standardized modular approach. But I I, I
1: think fundamentally, both of you are arguing for a change in mindset. Um, And and, uh, um, sometime, supported by a change in procurement and i I think that opens and begs the next question is is with that mindset change will the skills of the engineers remain the same or do you actually need to acquire a new set of skill to enable that mindset
3: sometimes i think education doesn't help where it's very very apart Uh, and i think architects are are almost encouraged to to think in a in a different way from from engineers i I would like to see more more places where where architects and engineers are, are taught to use the best possible technologies and the best Possible philosophies, if you like, to to generate the right buildings for the for this century, with with climate change needing to be addressed uh, in a way more urgently than ever we've ever thought necessary.
4: But I, I having said that, though, Mike, I I think. Uh... And I I completely agree with what you've just said. But having said that, I mean, we are probably the best equipped people because of the way we've been taught from thinking from first principle. And so, therefore... You know, our ability to solve any problem stems from that. And I think that's hugely important in in today's world. I mean, in terms of uh, the skill set as well, I mean, there's one thing I wanted to mention. You know, and you hear often in the press, you know, people saying that the uh, the surge in uh, modular, uh, competentized uh, construction, uh, volumetrics etc will lead to efficiencies on site because you will not need necessarily uh same amount of skilled labor to actually assemble these things and so therefore you know you you, you won't be reliant on the uh, supply chain uh, of uh, labor and i i personally i i understand the the message there but i think we need to be very careful to make sure that you know if anything you know, now is the time to make sure that we trained our people and our workforce and our um, uh, the tradesmen, you know, even more than ever so that we can maintain that very deep skill set that they have in their specific job that they do um, to ensure that we've got. Uh, quality, but also that we're able to adapt to the new challenges that uh, we are being faced with.
2: Uh, uh, you know, from my perspective, it's really interesting listening to you guys speak, because as I've said before, I have a biased view of the world. Now, at the MTC, we did a project with George Clark's Moby Charity, and we were, we helped them define the competition last year, which went out to students between the ages of 14 and 24, uh, and the challenge that we helped Moby to define was how could you make a uh, off-site manufactured house for multi-generational living, and this house had to be considered for how it could be changed and repurposed through life. So again, it's what I was talking about earlier. I should I should add. Um, And what we did is we came up with a module design, which was a three meter by three meter by three meter volumetric box. Um, The only real constraint we said to them was, you have to use this volumetric box. The designs that came back from these these youngsters were incredible. You know, they they had very different outputs in terms of the houses. But the thing that really got me is the different skills that they were bringing. That maybe the sector is going to need in the future. So they were looking at digital configurators. They were using computer game technology and computer game thinking. Um, they were using skills that they've developed in in games like. Minecraft and they kept saying to us this is just like playing Minecraft but like in real scale. Um, They were thinking about how they could build this thing using robots so what you just talked about—about about what would the future building site look like? Well, if these kids are right and they can make this house of the future, we can use robots to do it because these fourteen, sixteen-year-olds have shown us how it's possible. Now, the final point for me on skills um, really comes back from linking the people who are doing the doing to the designers. And I used to work for a uh, plant manager who was ex-Japanese automotive, and. Um, when when he was mentoring me, he was saying that when they um, built the first cars of a new design, they would take the the people off the assembly line. They take them out to Japan, and they would build the car or a series of cars, usually about a thousand, out in Japan. All of the people that he took with him were fully empowered to say. I'm not going to assemble. I'm not going to accept your design because I can't assemble it in volume and therefore you have to change this design. And the point I'm trying to make is where the empowerment comes. And what those guys had was the empowerment from the people doing the doing, not the people doing the designing
3: that the communities of architects and engineers have all come together very strongly in terms of declaring, not just declaring that there is a climate emergency, but declaring a whole series of ways in which they plan to change going forward. So um, what what I'd like to see most uh, going forward is that the that, that architects and engineers do live up to the what they have declared they will be doing. It's an almost an open invitation. We now need to start jointly thinking much, much harder about about what we can learn from the automotive industry and 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 so on in in in, in achieving what we have actually declared we want to achieve uh, going forward with the design of, of buildings.
1: To wrap up the conversation, maybe the Opportunity uh, to ask Mark, you know, looking ahead, uh, maybe five, ten years ahead, what what are you hoping to see, um, to to judge and
2: decide that things are now better well I, I really hope that the construction innovation hub program uh, which is funded till mid 2022 continues way beyond the end of the uh, government funding and the, the the partners that are working together really realize the benefits of not working in competition all the time understanding where they can collaborate understanding how they can share uh, common interfaces and mm-hmm intellectual property around those interfaces, they can really get a better handle on uh, longevity of their order book, allowing people to make capex decisions, to train up multidisciplinary workers, and ultimately be delivering buildings that maybe aren't uh, one uh sorry 10 for every one where we are now but at least a, a real step change in terms of uh, delivery performance in terms of cost quality uh, um embedded carbon recyclability uh, uk manufactured and assembled content all the other value metrics that we need to develop over the next couple of years
3: i mean this is a journey we've been on for a, for a, for a long time um uh, but i get the sense now that um is a huge amount of focus on this. There's a huge amount of focus on on more efficient, effective construction, um, decarbonizing construction, and finding the right ways to do that. So I see Bureau Hapolders. I, I would say honing what it does, and 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 I would say speaking more more positively and strongly with clients, with with architects, other collaborators, about ways in which we can deliver better quality, um, better price, and a much uh, more planet-responsive construction.
4: I mean, um, from uh, my point of view, I mean, speaking, you know, to maybe our addressing our clients, and, you know, there are a number of things that uh, we could do right now. One is to try and help bring everyone together so that you've got this more collaborative way of working and uh, managing the risk and the procurement as mike hinted at earlier and then the other one which i think is very important and will help tremendously and then the other one is trying to help as well uh us lead the way by standardizing certain um some of our buildings if you take for instance a commercial office building in the city of london at the moment, you know, you will have different types of grids of columns, um, leading to different types of components. And if we were able to maybe converge towards uh, a more standardized uh, grid, say a nine by nine, which now uh, many developers start to um, adopt as a basis for their design, you can then really start honing in, you know, these components we talked about, and really standardize them and understand how going to come together to make them a lot more efficient and pare them down to the absolute bare bone of what it is that they need to do, which will lead to loads of efficiencies in terms of materials from a carbon point of view, but also assembly.
0: Thank you, Frank. And thank you to all our guests for taking part in this fascinating discussion into the standardisation of design. If you want to learn more about this topic, download another recent VH podcast looking at the data side of modular construction. It's ready to listen to right now. You have been listening to Bureau Happold in Conversation, the podcast where we tackle big issues facing the engineering and construction world today. Catch up with the rest of our conversations on Google Play, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you've heard, please do share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. So thank you for listening and goodbye.